on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Mark Knoll about his new book, America's Book. So we cover all sorts of topics like how is this book related to his previous book called America's God? What is the relationship between American Republicanism and the Bible? Why did many Americans read the Bible's narratives as demonstrating God's special attention to the United States? How did the Bible shape the political discourse leading up to the Civil War? How did the Bible open the gates of paradise to countless individuals from every social class while also serving as a marketed commodity exploited for profit? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am joined by Hunter Heinzman today. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking for a serious church, you know, there's been, uh, I usually explain it along the lines of a couple of virtues, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We try to create sort of an intellectual culture and climate that produces these sort of things. Uh, But when I think about things like critical thinking, especially in my own Baptist context, I think of people like Dr. Mark Knoll as sort of the godfather of recovering a serious, rigorous thinking, uh, recovering um, the life of the mind. And when I think about it, what I've told people is in my own context, um, oftentimes the virtue of knowledge was looked down upon for various reasons. It almost seemed as if knowledge was only good if you could give a very simple, practical, specific, like you can use it to do X on the mission field. And we've tried to say, well, that, that's good, but we want to recover also the delight, the personal delight of knowledge in itself. Uh, there's something uniquely valuable and, and right about seeking to know things in and of themselves. And as I've thought about it, I, I've thought oftentimes I think in our trunicated sort of evangelical mind, mindset, we've thought if it doesn't have that practical import that's clearly seen, then it's not valuable. But I think the reverse is almost true. Unless we actually see knowledge as valuable in and of itself, we won't have the true long-lasting passion and the true um, depth of knowledge and experience that's useful in those missional contexts. So I think Dr. Knoll is... I am so excited to talk to him today. Um, He's really like, I think, um, hopefully we're fulfilling somewhat of his vision in in things like this. Um, And so I'm just thrilled to talk to him. We're going to be talking to him about his new book called America's Book. And it is a massive 700-page history uh, that is full of nuggets and insights. So I know you guys came here to listen to him, not me. So I'm going to stop rambling. And I'll let Dr. Noel introduce himself. Because you know what? We've got a lot of people who listen that might not be familiar with you, Dr. Noel. Um, The guy who founded this podcast with me, Brandon Askew, his grandma listens to every episode. And I have a good feeling she doesn't know who you are. So just give me a little bit of background about who you are. And then what was it that motivated you to write this particular book? Well, thank you very much for the invitation to uh, be on the podcast and to talk about the book. I am a retired historian and privileged to have emeritus status from Wheaton College, where I taught for almost three decades, and then the University of Notre Dame, where I taught for a decade. I'm retired and living in uh, Wheaton again uh, to be close to uh, children and, and grandchildren. The book uh, comes from a a very long-standing interest in how the Bible was put to use. Uh, Back in 1979 at Wheaton College, uh, we held a conference on just that subject. It was at a time when the evangelical world was was, uh, very much occupied with the question of of what is the Bible and and the issue of biblical inerrancy, what was uh, at the forefront. And uh, at least most of the historians I was with said, well, that's an important issue, but what about how the Bible is put to use? So we had a conference in 1979. From that, a book came out in 1982, The Bible in American Culture. And ever since that time, I've I've at least had a a residual interest in in the subject. And uh, 
teaching at Notre Dame from the early 21st century. I had time to do more research and pull research together. It led to a book on the use of the Bible in the colonial period uh, through the period of the American Revolution. And then this book that probably did uh, kind of get out of hand with its, its length. But the story of how the Bible uh, was influential in American history, but also how American developments influenced the way in which the Bible is used is a complicated story. There's a lot of, from a, from a Christian standpoint, there's a lot of high points, but also from a Christian standpoint, there's a lot of low points. So the story is complicated. The book kind of grew like Topsy. Uh, we end in 1911, but uh, by that time, uh, probably there's too many pages and, and exhaustion would set into readers as well as writers. Well, I don't know. I probably could have kept reading uh, all the way to today. Um Though I think the whole thing is fascinating. So uh, before we get into like the the real subject matter of this particular book, I, I was interested. So you also have another book called America's God. Would you say there are any major connections between these two things where you would say these are related in this way? Yes. Uh, the full title of the book you mentioned is America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. And it's primarily a study of how the events of the American founding— so in the 1770s, 1780s, and then the development of a kind of national consciousness in the decades that followed shaped the articulation of Christian theology. And because uh, up through the time of the Civil War, it's mostly Protestant theology, the book is heavily uh, uh, emphasizes uh, 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 pr Protestant uh, uh, theologians. Uh, the, the, the current book on, on the Bible has some of the same questions about how events of the founding era were exploited by believers, how events of the founding era influenced uh, believers. So that is an overlap, although but when you're studying the, the Bible and its use, as opposed to studying formal theology, you broaden out to people who aren't particularly educated, you certainly broaden out to women as well as men. And in the American context, you, you broaden out to enslaved African-Americans, free African-Americans, as well as whites. So the, the uh, question about how did, how did the, the Christian faith become enculturated it is, is the common link. The earlier book was enculturated for the purposes of talking about theology. This uh, book and the, the, the one on the, uh, the colonial period a broader um, goal to not just focus on the intellectual elites, but to tr try to say something about uh, the use of the Bible uh, by all levels of American society. Dr. Noel, since you're talking about the, the American founding and its influence on Christianity and the, and the use of the Bible, uh, what was the relationship with the rise of American republicanism and how the Bible was used, how they understood common sense and how that fed into the way that they used the Bible. Would you mind just unpacking some of that for us? Sure. The, the, the American founding is an experiment because unlike the European history from which uh, uh, the, the settlers of, of the United States came from, America the United States came from, the new United States begins by severing the link between, formal link between the institutional churches and the institutions of government. So we just talk about the separation of, of church and state. This just is taken for granted now, but it, it represents a huge reversal to throw over what had been more than a thousand years of European Christendom, or the formal inter interlinking of the institutions of church and the institutions of, of, of state. The United States is not going to have a monarch. It's not going to have a formal aristocracy. It's not going to have respected uh, educational ins institutions. It's going to have a free people operating freely with Republican values. Now, what, what does that mean? It means that uh, trust for preserving the integrity and stability of society is going to come from the people themselves. Now, the people, 1780, meant mostly white men with property, so it wasn't democratic yet. But the Republican theory was that we, we can have a successful society without a monarch, without aristocracy, without deference to uh, the past, if individuals personally can be virtuous. And in the early 
United States, while there were other ways of thinking about virtue, reliance upon the scriptures as the means to preserve the personal virtue without which republics would fail became very important. The book begins in 1794-95 with a, 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 a famous pamphlet, a series of actually a two-part big book by Tom Paine that attacked traditional use of the Bible as undermining the possibility for a healthy society. There's a huge pushback by all kinds of, of all positions, theological positions, saying, no, no, the Bible is the word of God. We've got to follow it. And that, that push became in the minds of many, many Americans the way to preserve a republic. The republic needs virtuous citizens. How are we going to have virtuous citizens? We're going to spread the Bible. We're going to spread use of the Bible. We're going to have eventually, when a public school system develops, the non-sectarian King James Bible be read every day so that young people can be trained in personal virtue. So republicanism requires a means of promoting virtue from below. And the Bible is the means that was mostly chosen by most people to preserve that uh, uh, virtue from below. Common sense enters the picture because once the Bible is um, located as the means by which to promote the virtue without which republics fail, then the, the habits of mind that had become established during the revolutionary period and thereafter were the means by which the Bible was interpreted. And common sense moral principles had been a major prop in justifying the rebellion against Britain and in organizing the United States. Uh, common sense moral principles said, well, you, uh, it's, it's just a given that people know there's a moral uh, governor in the universe. It's just a given that uh, vice in public life leads to tyranny. It's just a given that if we can promote virtue in the citizenry, we're going to have a successful uh, uh, republic. So common sense principles were used to interpret the Bible because common sense principles had been so widely adopted in many areas of American public life. So now I am also interested in this question, and it seems like it's a constant live evaluation of whether this is good or bad. But today, I feel like I see it constantly. Um, so I want to know not whether it's good or bad, but why this happened. So it seems that many Americans begin to read the Bible's narratives as demonstrating God's special attempt, attention to the U.S. So what are the causal factors that are leading to such an interpretation? Right. So the, the effort to promote the Bible as the foundation for Republican virtue has a history. The history goes back primarily uh, concerning the British settlement of the colonies that become the, the United States. We know a lot about the, the Puritans in New England, and they were certainly important for trying to develop a society that in some sense imitated the society and the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in which the rule of God provided the, the standard for organizing society. So we have with the, with the Puritans a very strong consciousness that they are the people of God, and they, are, they have the responsibility, the privilege, of organizing their colonial governments, their states, under the, the rule of God, and particularly with the Old Testament as the model. Now, there is a, a, a tricky factor here. The first and second generation of the American Puritans were not thinking about America they were thinking about an ideal reformed church. So, so we hear quite frequently these days reference to the statement by John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts, we shall be as a people on the hill. That statement is often taken to refer to America. Winthrop wasn't concerned about America. He was concerned about the, the reformation of the church. And he was hoping that there would be an alliance between a, a, a truly Protestant church in Massachusetts, a truly Protestant church in, in, in Scotland, America, on the continent, and so forth. But over time, the, the city on the hill, explained really in great detail by a fine book, recent book by Abram 
Van Engen, the city on the hill is a, begin to apply to the to the colonies themselves, and then there's a huge impetus to identify not so much the colonies but Britain and its colonies as chosen by God because of the warfare with Catholic France that extends throughout most of the early decades of the 18th century. So we know in in uh, popular understandings of colonial history about the French and Indian War, also called the Seven Years' War. That's only one of the, the conflicts that, that embroiled Britain as an empire against France as a rival empire. Uh, it, it's during the French and Indian War, for example, that what's now Canada is, is conquered by, uh, by Britain. And in th- those wars, British Protestant virtue was seen as combating Catholic French tyranny. So the sense of Britain as a chosen nation by God goes very strong, and it goes very strong, as strong in the colonies as it does in the mother country. The colonies are just, just in great terror of the French and Indian assault upon their liberties, their life, their property. So we have a Puritan route. We then have a uh, a stimulus for thinking about the British colonies, Britain and its colonies, as chosen by God. And then we come to the Revolutionary Era. The chosenness continues, but the, but the colonists say, oh, wait, we thought the great challenge, the great threat to liberty was Catholic tyranny. It turns out it's not Catholic tyranny, it's the tyranny of Parliament. And it's very, very interesting, in the early 1770s, You see colonists calling leaders of Britain Jesuits because they begin begin to be seen in the colonists as doing the same evil things to promote tyranny that for a long time Britain had accused France, Catholic France, of doing. So the revolution changes a little bit who is feared as the great engine of vice and tyranny but the great engine of vice and tyranny turns out to be the, 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 the evils of parliament and their tyrannical actions. So into the new United States, we have a very strong tradition of thinking that a, a freedom-loving people who rely on the truths of the Protestant religion, including reliance on the Bible, are in a special relationship with God. During the Revolution, there's just a lot of, of reference to the Old Testament as... Uh, 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 in a way, foreseeing what was happening in the, the, the New World. So George Washington is Moses. George III is Pharaoh. Uh, freedom from parliamentary tyranny is like the children of Israel being brought out of, of Egypt. Of course, there's a, there's a minority report. If you're, if you're a black African-American slave, then of course it's the United States at Pharaoh, and and uh, if you're liberated by uh, Britain, then 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 they have a positive biblical reference. But for for the white population, it just c- continues right on to think. Well, the United States has the opportunity now, particularly if we can follow the Bible, to be in the contemporary world a, a, a symbol for the nations in the way that ancient Israel was a symbol for the nations in Old Testament time. So it's, it's a complicated history, but, but right into the, I would say, uh, the, the Civil War era, the, the, the analogy between Old Testament Israel and America is very strong. And as we've seen to our day, that, that analogy can, can, can somehow survive as well. Dr. Noel, you, you briefly just touched on it, but I would I'd like for you to kind of unpack it a little bit more. Recently, you've you presented on uh, the differences in you know black evangelical approaches to the scriptures and white evangelical approaches to the scriptures in this time period. So how did the Bible, as particularly those Old Testament narratives of, of Exodus and those things that you were highlighting, inspire hope for black Americans and inspire others to challenge racism, while at the same time, in some sectors, it inspired others to support uh, white supremacy, uh, the institution of slavery, and, and other things? Yes, uh, the, the, the way in which uh, the Bible is implicated in arguments about slavery becomes very, very, very uh, important. 
in the revolutionary period and immediately thereafter, there's strong Christian voices attacking slavery. So some of the uh, students of Jonathan Edwards uh, are, are, are strong opponents of, of slavery. Uh, when when, when uh, denominations are reformulated after the American Revolution, the Presbyterians have a strong statement against slavery. The new Methodist organization in uh, the United States uh, came together in 1784, and one of its first real strong uh, statements about society was opposition to slavery. But that, that opposition uh, by Christian people merged a kind of general libertarian notion. So we're fighting against parliamentary tyranny. Isn't it strange that we would have a uh, continuation of slavery? Uh, with that uh, general libertarian notion came some very strong biblical uh, principles and e even a little bit of biblical proof text, you know, although not, not too much. Yet, as we know, uh, the United States is formed, the Constitution is put together because of the ability to compromise with slave-owning parts of the new, new United States. So we do have a situation where uh, probably the majority of people who say something morally about slavery in the United States in the 1780s and 90s are, are opposed. But as soon as uh, these voices begin to enter the public space with the, with the word God condemns slavery, there's an immediate response from the slave-holding population of the United States, and then very soon thereafter, with the part of the population of the United States that simply honors the Bible. So uh, the early Congress, uh, early 1790s, there was Pennsylvania a delegate to, or representative in Congress who brought a petition from Pennsylvania Quakers to say, uh, should not the United States go on record opposing slavery since we know in the Bible that Jesus taught that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you? And then immediately on the, on the floor of Congress, there's a response from, uh, I think it's the representative from North Carolina who says, well, well, of course we want to treat enslaved people properly, but, but look at the scriptures. Leviticus uh, authorizes the Hebrews to have slaves. Jesus does not condemn enslavement. The Apostle Paul tells slaves to obey their masters. So as soon as in the public sphere there's a Christian-inspired complaint, there's a Bible-inspired defense. African Americans know about that defense. And yet, now here I've got to speak as a, a Christian interpreter of the past, there is a power in the scriptures that can escape even those who dominate its interpretation. And particularly uh, in the more uh, evangelical preaching that, that focused upon God's power to liberate from sin, to give people purpose in life, beginning right back in the time of the revival of the 1740s and 50s, there is a small African-American response to that gospel message. And it continues small, particularly then with after the revolution with the rise of the Methodists, there's very effective Methodist evangelization among African-American uh, populations. So by 1800, 1810, we're seeing the beginning of what would eventually become the, the very important, very large black turn to Protestant Christianity. Even at the same time, as the Bible defense of slavery itself becomes stronger and stronger. So we have this uh, really quite odd situation, but uh, I mean, from a modern Christian angle, it's almost a miraculous situation. We have black inspiration from the stories and emblems and narratives of a book that is also being used to defend the enslavement of African-Americans. Now, the voices of African-Americans themselves are hard to hear. It, it just, for all sorts of reasons, what African-Americans and black Americans said and, and very soon started to write just did not have much impact in, in the wider culture. 1810, one of the founders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church by the name of Daniel Coker, publishes actually a short pamphlet, but a very effective pamphlet saying, 
Look, if we take the whole story of the Bible, we look at Abraham freeing Abraham's slaves, we look at the way that Abraham circumcised his slaves, and then they were, they were given all the privileges of, of Israel. That's the situation we are in now. We're in the Christian era. All people are either Christians or potentially Christians, and therefore they should not be enslaved. And that's actually a fairly sophisticated argument. Uh, uh, Richard Allen, the founder of the, uh, uh, another founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, also published things sort of along that line. But but those publications really did not register with with, with the, the white publication with the white uh, population. Nonetheless, there continued to be in black communities and in, and some sympathetic whites the use of the Bible among enslaved populations and free blacks that emphasized the liberating actions of God and focused on Moses, Jesus as, as liberators from sin as well as liberators from, from bondage. So what, what does develop is, is very much a uh, divided situation where uh, Christianity is growing in African-American populations uh, and Disputes over what the Bible says about slavery become more and more intense, and, and an even stronger defense of slavery from the scriptures develops from about 1800 right through the time of the Civil War. And a very important point here has to be that once the scriptures were appealed to as adjudicating the question of enslavement, there were as many Northerners, Northern whites, who often reluctantly concluded, well, we guess the Bible does somehow legitimate slavery. We might be opposed to it. We might think that it should come to an end, but we can't say that the Bible is opposed to slavery. That's a white Northern opinion, as well as, of course, the, the white Southern opinion where slaveholding what was, uh, was, was common. But the key point is that you had different ways of approaching the Bible that were active in white communities and black communities and the scriptural message of liberation in Christ really took hold in these decades after the American Revolution among the enslaved and free black population in the United States in a story not unconnected, but different to the story in the majority white population. Yeah, so now I'm also interested in thinking about the Bible's role in shaping the political discourse that leads up to the Civil War. So I know you've got a whole book on sort of the Civil War as theological crisis, but specifically thinking political discourse and the Bible's role in shaping that, I'd be curious in you unpacking some of that. Right. Uh, until the 1820s, and uh, maybe even the early 1830s, the Bible is a background, general resource for American uh, public life. Uh, we, there, there aren't many uh, issues where people say, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. One of them actually happens to be the uh, question, should the U.S. Postal Service be moving the mail on Sunday? And there was a, a, a strong popular movement, 1815 or so, to say, well, we, we need to respect the Sabbath as a day to honor God. That was that kind of that did not develop into a major conflict. Uh, presidents in in uh, their inaugurate inaugural addresses sometimes quote the Bible uh, in in a general way. Uh, more importantly, uh, scripture is being spread throughout the United States by very active voluntary societies. The American Bible Society is the first national organization to organize uh, print distribution. Um, American Sunday School Union, American Tract Society are distributing just uh, millions of pages of, of Bible and Bible-related uh, material. And there is, uh, in, in, the, in the decades from the 1790s into the 1860s, just an explosion of the Protestant churches. But we eventually get to Catholic immigration and Catholic churches too. But that explosion means that more and more of the population are Bible people. So it, it, it's not as though there's a lot of uh, real active 
argumentation, political shaping from Scripture in the early decades of the United States, but there is a very, it's a growing, popular reliance upon the Bible illustrated, I think I, I said earlier, by when uh, public schools get underway, New York, Massachusetts, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, it, it's instinctive to have daily Bible readings from the King James Version as the non-sectarian, supposedly non-sectarian way of promoting virtue. Okay, all that's in the background. Then in the 1820s, then particularly early 1830s, the question of the morality of slavery becomes a public issue that can't be avoided. There is a, a, a really inflammatory track by the, a Boston free black, uh, David Walker, in 1829, that uses the Bible on every page in, in a radical denunciation of the slave system. In 1831, uh, William Lloyd Garrison begins his newspaper, The Liberator, which demands immediate uh, emancipation for all sorts of reasons, uh, we would say today humanitarian reasons, but then a very strong biblical push toward it. And, and in, eight, uh, in eight, 1831 is also the Nat Turner revolt in, in uh, Virginia, the, the, the largest slave insurrection in, in uh, U.S. history, where uh, it's obvious, uh, as the, the Turner Rebellion is uh, studied and, and people find out about it, it's obvious that Turner and the people that, rebelled against slave owners, were influenced by the Bible. They had a very strong biblical sense. So you have, in the beginning of the 1830s, a new visibility for the question of the morality of slavery. As soon as that appears, arguments about the Bible supporting or attacking slavery proliferate. Uh, I've got long chapters in this book on the pro-slavery Bible argument, the anti-slavery Bible argument, they're long chapters. I read uh, hundreds of works, and I only that, and that's only a fraction. Immediately from the 1830s, right through the Civil War itself, the, the question about the public morality, the morality of slavery, became a public issue that could not be uh, avoided. There's a chapter in the book on the year 1844. There were riots in Philadelphia when uh, Protestants thought the main Catholic bishop in Philadelphia was trying to get rid of Bible readings in the public schools. Well, he really wanted to have Catholic kids be able to read from the Douay-Rheims Catholic Bible, not to get rid of them. But there, there were riots that led to the destruction of several Catholic churches and the, the murder of, of, of Catholics. 1844, the, the uh, uh, the Whig candidate for president was Henry Clay. His vice presidential running mate was Theodore Frühlingheisen, who was a major figure in the American Bible Society, who'd given a, a, a well-publicized speech shortly before he was named the vice presidential candidate to say, well, we're nervous in, in New York about the spread of Catholics because they're undermining the, the fabric of, of the United States. And in the election of 1844, Catholics in, in New York vote for uh, James K. Polk, the Democratic candidate, and Polk's elected over Henry Clay, who was the, the odds-on on favorite. So there is this kind of uh, entrance of, of biblical material and then biblical argumentation in, into the uh, political sphere. And as we get closer and closer to the 1860s and the actually outbreak of, of, uh, of the conflict, particularly in the White South, there is a really strong defense of the biblical propriety of enslavement. Of course, there are a few courageous Southerners who say, well, of course the Bible defends slavery, but we have to treat our slaves better than we are doing. And that actually could be a, a statement that would get people in trouble, but that statement was made. In the North, it's a, it's a mixed picture, but there's, there are very strong voices in the white North to say that Bible is, is opposed to slavery. There's a, I would say, many more people in the North who say, well, we don't like slavery, but boy, that Bible argument in defense of slavery is, is very strong. So the, the, the coloration of public argument over this one central issue grows in importance, even as more and more people pitch in with what they think the scripture says about enslavement and how a moral people, a supposedly Christian people, 
should be guided by the imperatives of, of the scripture. And that led then to uh, the Civil War becoming, as, as really great historians like George Rabel have said, the most religious war in American history. Southerners knew that they were now like Israel, being liberated from Pharaoh, Abraham Lincoln. Northerners knew that Lincoln was the helmsman who had to preserve the Union. And then for African Americans, once the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, Abraham Lincoln became Moses, who, who, was, who was freeing his people. During the Civil War, there, there's, there is a, a pervasive appeal to biblical images uh, to, to describe the leaders of the Confederacy, the leaders of, of the Union, and, and uh, there is, I would say, even a surfeit, a kind of overkill in using uh, biblical images to, to, uh, to defend or attack whatever your particular position is. Sadly, I think, uh, actual argumentation from Scripture kind of, kind of falls into the background. It's mostly emblematic. But the, the, the main point is that from the late 1820s, right through the, the Civil War, Main political principles are being backed up by the Bible, and they're being backed up in a contradictory way, especially on the question of the morality of slavery. Could it be justified from Scripture? Many, many whites said yes, north and south. Should it be condemned from Scripture? Some whites in the north, African Americans, said, well, of course it can be defended by Scripture. And that, that division over whether the scriptures could sanction the American slave system brought an end, I think, to the effort to have a whole civilization based on the precepts of, of the scriptures. There was still, by 1860, a large portion of the American population that thought that was very important and needed to be done. But when that large proportion of the American population could not agree on what the Bible meant for the civilization, it was, it, it was going to, it, it was just, it wasn't going to be possible anymore to say we're going to have a whole civilization based on the Bible. That's interesting. Um, I, I'm also interested in a similar phenomenon that is related to sort of the, I guess, social class aspect. So you've got these dualities that you're presenting here about how the Bible's being used for one group and, and completely differently for another group. So how is it that the Bible, in a way, opens the gates of, say, paradise, countless individuals for every social class in America, uh, but it's also serving as a very strongly marketed commodity that it's being exploited for profit? Yeah, the exploitation for profit is, is a really interesting uh, aspect of the circulation of the Bible, which uh, from the late 1790s right to the present, it is a huge commercial story. Uh, the American Bible Society is the first really large-scale publisher of any kind, really, in the United States, and it is organized as not-for-profit. But for-profit Bible publishing <laughs> was, was there also almost as soon as, as the... Uh, American Bible Society, if not at the same time. And what we see developing in, in uh, the 19th century, which continues on to the present, is just a lot of concern to, to market the, the, the scriptures. Now, the good thing to this, again, speaking from a Christian point of view, is that there just is a tremendous availability of, of the scriptures. And so the Bible can be used for all sorts of purposes, some that I think are entirely helpful and healthy, and then others maybe not so healthy. At the same, so the, the, this is, a, this is a, a positive from the democratic access of, of American life. Things are open in America. If you want to do something, you can mobilize the talent, the money, the expertise, you can do it. And, and there were a lot of people who wanted to do it but in distributing uh, the, the scriptures. That meant that all populations, even enslaved populations would have access to either, either the printed scriptures or, or the oral use, use of the Bible. Um, missiologists, historians of mission, talk about the, the dramatic rise in Christian adherence 
that extends from the 1790s well into the uh, end of the 19th century. And that dramatic rise has a, has a lot to do with the availability of the scriptures to all classes, all types of people, and, and every circumstance. At the same time, you have to raise the question, well, how much is the Bible being made available as the Word of God, free to liberate in every aspect, and then how much of the Bible be, is becoming just a commercial enterprise? I'm not sure I can answer that question, because uh, the, the commercial big firms were themselves often motivated by uh, biblical values themselves. Harper and Brothers, which leads eventually to Harper and Row, and, and, and a firm that still has an existence today, was a, was a New York publisher organized by uh, four Methodist brothers who were serious about the Christian faith, but also uh, when they saw that voluntary groups like the American Bible Society had captured the, the market for inexpensive Bibles, they, in the 1830s and 40s, began publishing really expensive illustrated Bibles that were, you, you, you had to be a weightlifter to pick them up and, uh, and open them up, and it's called Family Bibles. Harper and Brothers sold stands for these huge Bibles. It cost quite a bit of money. They were not just seeking profit. They were trying to promote the scriptures, but they saw that promoting the scriptures was a way to, to uh, bringing profit. My own sense is that it's a good thing for the Bible to be available in, in uh, many formats, many prices for, for all sorts of purposes. But uh, given... Um, the history of the United States where commercial values can kind of crowd out all other values, it's, it's important to keep in mind that when the Bible is widely available, widely sold, uh, the temptation is, is to, again, instrumentalize the scripture to say, you should read the Bible because it's, it's good for you, and, and it also helps us make a profit, rather than saying you should read the Bible because it brings God, God's word to you. Now, one thing I really want you to to talk to me a little bit about is this idea of the Bible civilization sort of declining. Um, I think we've, I mean, over the last year plus, I've seen more and more people, I guess, really emphasize this idea of we want to return and recover this Bible civilization idea. So talk to me a little bit about the decline and if there are theological reasons for this or if there are other reasons for it. And then... What, if anything, do you think could be done to reverse it today? And you don't have to tell me if you think it should be reversed or be recovered, but just thinking, it, what is it that was lost that would be put back in place for those who want to recover it, um, that it would be that? So let's just start with, what's the decline look like? Decades of United States history, active Protestants of several different varieties, they didn't always agree with each other, active Protestants turned to the scriptures as a basis for civilization, for the, for the civilization that would be free from the evils of European Christendom. They achieved a measure of success in the 18, into the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. The success was undermined by the inability of Protestants to agree on what the Bible said about the principal public moral issue of the day. Now, there are other factors, of course. The 1830s and 40s, there's the beginning of, of strong Catholic immigration. A little bit later, there's the beginning of strong uh, Jewish immigration. Uh, even later, there, there is a growing segment of the population that doesn't want to have anything to do with formal religion. So there certainly would be, uh, there, were, there were problems developing for the idea that we could have a voluntary, free Bible civilization created by the freely chosen actions of the citizenry. Well, it sort of worked while the citizenry was mostly Protestant and mostly mostly evangelical Protestant until the division over the Bible and slavery and then the pluralization of American society. So I think it begins to decline as soon as Protestants just can't agree on how you put the Bible to use to make a, make a civilization. Recovering a civilization is problematic, in my view, because of 
cautions that a, a few people raised in the heyday of the Bible's usefulness. And the caution was expressed not too often, but in some really uh, perceptive way. The caution was this. When you stress that the Bible is the basis of American civilization, do do you stress the pragmatic usefulness of the Bible so much that you miss its universal application for all people at all times? So certainly this happened in the great disputes over, over slavery. Uh, and the arguments were basically the same from both sides. You say you believe the Bible, but on the question of the morality of slavery, you hold such and such, because you are so obviously misunderstanding the Bible in that issue, it must mean that you don't really believe the Bible. So the ability to, to think, well, somebody who stood opposite me on the question of the morality of slavery might still be part of joined to me in a way that we can build a common civilization just 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 collapses an evaluative question that i struggle with and i i'm not sure i i have an answer is to ask um, what kind of coercion what kind of force is necessary to have an entire society follow what one group thinks is the Bible's plan for that society. In the early United States, you could get away with saying, I'm for freedom and I'm for a Bible civilization. But once there came the division over slavery and then once there came a much greater pluralism of religion in in the United States, it's hard for me to think that uh, you can say, we want to return to a Bible civilization and not say, I'm willing to force a lot of other people to do what they don't want to do. Now, as a Protestant who thinks the Bible speaks to all areas of life, I actually think it does. And, and there is a at least a, a, a general political understanding of Scripture that should help guide believers in, in public life. But the danger of moving from that conviction, the Bible has something to say about all of life. The danger from moving from that conviction to saying we have to impose, we have to uh, legalize, we have to make official my understanding of, of the Bible seems to me inevitably to require the use of force in a way that would undermine biblical values. So I, say, that's, I think my, my dilemma as a Bible believer is I, I want people to follow the scriptures. But then my reservation is, do I want to force other Christians and other people who aren't Christian believers, do I want to force them to follow my understanding of, of the Bible? And I don't want to do that, but I do want to have the former. I do want to have Bible influence. So I'm ambiguous about a Bible civilization, if you could somehow get everybody to freely vote to institute procedures, legislation that I feel follow scripture guidelines, I'd probably be for that. But getting people freely to vote from my understanding of how the Bible should be applied seems, it just doesn't seem possible. So I'm very pleased in these occasions to be a historian who can record what went on and not someone who has to uh, kind of decide what the future of the Republic should be. Well, I wish you would have some influence on telling us what we should think here, because I have no idea what the answer is either. Um, Though I think the way you've laid it out here is especially uh, helpful in thinking about the different options that you have and the conflict that lies there and and what way, how we should prioritize them and how we should think about it. So even if you're not going to tell me what I should do, at least I have a good framework in mind. So, Dr. Noll, I'll tell you, this has been a, a delight. This has been a real treat. Um, for those who are listening, um, who read every single book of yours, do you have any other books that you're saying, I'm definitely going to write this in the next, let's say, three to five years, so be looking for it? 
Well, I am getting to the age where that's uh, an existential question. Uh, I have, uh, thanks to uh, uh, a, a program at Wheaton College, given some lectures on the American reception of C.S. Lewis in the early, in the 1930s and 1940s. And that will actually become a book from University Press next year. I've been interested in, in uh, Christian uh, history of Canada for a long time, and maybe maybe there'll be a book on that. But uh, I'm also getting to the point where I'm maybe asking myself, have you written enough books? And the answer may be, maybe yes. <laughs> well, I, I have enjoyed all of your books. So I, you keep writing them as long as the Lord gives you that vitality. I hope you do, because I've enjoyed them and benefited from them. Well, um, thank so you, thanks, Dr. Noel. This has been awesome. Yeah, um, I think... Yeah, all of our listeners, uh, they know you and respect your work. And I think uh, the Lord has uniquely gifted you and used you in your own time. So I, I very appreciate all that you've done. Um, and I, I know that it's encouraged countless um, uh, Christians and non-Christians even to think that, hey, there is an intellectual life of substance here in, in the Christian tradition. So thank you for all that you're doing and continue to do. And everybody's been listening. I, I tell you what, if you haven't read Dr. Knoll's stuff, go on Amazon, go wherever you buy your books, um, and start buying his books. I mean, they are just tremendous material. You're not going to be disappointed. You're going to be you're going to benefit from them. So support um, him. Support good books. Support um, reading things that are going to stretch you and make you think Christianly about all sorts of topics. So everybody's been tuning in. We we appreciate you for listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.